Hello, and welcome to The World Ahead on Economist Radio. I'm Tom Standage, Deputy Editor at The Economist. In this future-gazing podcast series, we consider provocative prophecies and speculative scenarios to gain a different perspective on the present and help us better prepare for what might come next. This month, we're looking at the prospects for coronavirus vaccines and the challenges involved in rolling them out around the world in 2021. One of the big problems about planning for the distribution of these vaccines is that we don't know which ones are going to be successful. It's costing right now $500 billion a month to the global GDP. The bit that's most likely to be politicised actually is the approval of vaccines and tests. So coordinating all this is just this massive feat. So this is absolutely monumental. It feels like a long time ago now, but back at the start of 2020, when the coronavirus outbreak began tearing across the world, it seemed unlikely that a vaccine would arrive anytime soon. Vaccines, after all, generally take several years to develop and test. But as the scale of the crisis became apparent, researchers around the world began working on vaccines at a speed and on a scale that has never been seen before. Tens of thousands of Americans have volunteered for Moderna's large-scale human vaccine trial. It's getting underway at locations across 30 states and Washington, D.C. The first week of July saw the first exciting news of a possible COVID vaccine around the corner in India. encouraging news tonight on a new type of vaccine being tested in Britain. The vaccine race is on. And as the end of the year approaches, it seems likely that the world is only a few weeks away from having one or more working vaccines. That's because of the sheer number of vaccines under development, more than 200, the diversity of approaches being taken, and the fact that several vaccines have already reached the crucial third phase of testing. A stage three trial is when you try and work out whether your vaccine actually works or not. Natasha Loder is health policy editor at The Economist. So that means that you give your vaccine to a group of people and then you get another group of people who are identical to the first group and you don't give them the vaccine, you give them a placebo. And a couple of months down the line, you look and you see whether there are more or less infections in your treatment group. Now, you only do a stage three trial if the vaccine has shown some sort of promise in stages one and two. So you're not just kind of hoping for the best by the time you get to this stage, are you? Traditionally speaking, no, you you wouldn't go to a stage three, phase three trial unless you'd had promising results from phases one and two. As it is, though, we have been moving very quickly and we've been kind of compressing all these phases so that they sort of run almost parallel, but not quite. So a lot of these phase three trials have actually started before we've seen full results from phase one and phase two. All that said, all the vaccines that we're now looking at in phase three trials, we actually have seen phase one and two data. And they're interesting and useful indications that something's going on. They're all stimulating an immune reaction in the hundreds of patients that they've looked at. So what are the steps from a phase three trial, and you've got a number of them going on at the moment, to actual availability? What are the milestones along the way? The normal process for getting from vaccine to on the market isn't quite the one we're following. Now, normally what would happen is you would 
do a phase three trial in about 30,000 people, you would assemble all the data, um, which would take you quite a long time, and you'd analyze it this way and that way, and you'd look at subgroups, and you'd fill a whole big package of information, and then you'd give it to a regulator. And then a regulator would sort of sift through it, might ask questions, they may even ask follow-up trials, you never know. And then they would give what's called marketing approval, and then the vaccine would be fully approved for use. Now, um, that process is quite time consuming. What's happening with the vaccine is that it's become realised that once you have a little interim peek at this data, you'll be able to see whether there's a difference between the placebo group and the treatment group. In other words, you take a little peek and you'll be able to see if having the vaccine protects you from COVID-19. And so that's kind of what everyone's talking about. If there is this interim data set that maybe they could present this information to a regulator and that a regulator would then give what's called an emergency approval or authorization. It's not an approval. So you're allowed to use the vaccine because there's a pandemic on and it's a medical emergency. So if the data do look promising, how quickly could we get to an emergency authorization and therefore to actually starting to jab people? So we just don't know how long the regulators are going to take, but I don't think it will be long. I certainly don't think it will be the many, many months that they usually take. I'm hopeful that authorised vaccines will start to go into arms before the end of the year, certainly to a limited extent anyway. One organisation that has vast experience of vaccine research and distribution is Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance. It's a public-private global health partnership with the goal of increasing access to immunisation in poor countries. Dr Seth Berkeley is the chief executive of Gavi. I asked him what are the biggest obstacles to getting vaccines from the laboratory and into people's arms. There is an efficacy question, and then there also is a manufacturing and safety question. And you've seen a number of trials have been stopped because of being careful on safety. That's the job of regulators. So once there are efficacious vaccines, the challenge is going to be to manufacture them at scale. So if you are asking the question, will there be doses of vaccine that are available to use in high-risk groups in a carefully managed fashion by next year, assuming they work, I think I'm pretty certain to say that would be true. If the definition is will every physician in the world have in their refrigerator commercial vaccines that they can use in their populations, um, that is unlikely to happen in 2021. Instead, it's likely that this will be a campaign-like mode to roll the vaccine out for high-risk groups. And then as more vaccines become available, we'll also understand better how those vaccines are affecting the disease and epidemiology. Unlike a traditional vaccine where we have understand the organism, we understand the vaccines, this is one that we're building the boat as it's sailing in a pandemic storm. And so there are a lot of questions we're going to have to work out even after the vaccines are proven to be efficacious. A lot of people seem to think that a vaccine is a sort of silver bullet. It's just going to make everything go away and we go back to normal. How would you characterise the situation? I think that is a wrong way to think about it. In the news recently has been examples of people getting infected for a second time. Of course, our hope would be to have such profound immune response that that would not be possible. 
But I think we are still going to have to be careful, certainly when there's active outbreaks going on. So I suspect it is going to be a combination of hopefully treatments that will get better, vaccines which will prevent the infection, and then a continuation of some basic preventive strategies that will control this epidemic. Of course, over the longer term, you do want to be able to go to life uh, relatively normal, but one shouldn't expect that, oh, I got my shot and I'm not going to have to pay attention to it anymore. Until the pandemic is really under control, we'll still have to be careful. How does the challenge of manufacturing and distributing this vaccine at scale compare with the challenge of developing it? Of course, people think about the development as the critical challenge. This would be the largest rollout of vaccine in history. We've done some big um, rollouts of vaccines in the past where we have done them quickly. For example, uh, switching from having just oral polio vaccines to inactivated polio vaccines in uh, a large number of countries. But the magnitude and scale of trying to do it worldwide and doing it in the elderly is an extraordinary task. So it's really going to require all hands on deck to be able to do that. In terms of manufacturing, there has been a question on what is the capabilities to do that. What you really need to think about here is how you take advantage of existing capabilities and using those existing capabilities to expand them uh, for this activity. But of course, we also don't want to hurt existing vaccines. And so it's important that when we do that, we make sure that we can keep the existing vaccines vaccines moving. So a lot of the work we've done has not just been in terms of preparing for this, but beginning to do technology transfers of vaccines to other manufacturers so there would be a broader footprint to be able to produce them. Finding one or more working vaccines is a big step forward then, but there are many challenges that still need to be overcome and should not be underestimated. Here's Natasha Loder again. One of the big problems about planning for the distribution of these vaccines is that we don't know which ones are going to be successful. And they have different characteristics which determine you know, who you would want to give them to and how you would store them. So let me give you an example. What's called the nucleic acid vaccines, these are the ones made by Pfizer and Moderna, they have to be kept really cold, like super cold, uh, minus 80 degrees C. And That's quite a challenge. And they also come in boxes of a certain size. And so, you know, when you open the box, you've got a certain amount of time. There are all sorts of rules about how many times you're supposed to open them. And so it's a really complicated product to deliver. And so it's going to be hard to see that this product is going to be easily available beyond big hospitals. Some vaccines, you just won't be able to do that or it's going to be very challenging to do that. I think most people assume that a supply chain is this linear conveyor belt. Nada Sanders is a professor of supply chain management at the DeMore McKim School of Business at Northeastern University. And what every product has is something called a bill of materials. You know, bill of materials is really specifies exactly all the components that go into to actually put this product together. So when we think about the vaccine, everybody is talking about, and it's critical, you know, do we have a candidate? That's a whole different thing. But then you have the injection kits themselves, the various components that are really challenging to get. So some of the vaccine candidates uh, require adjuvants that are also perishable and others do not. But then there are needles 
that have to come as part of the injection kit. Then there are things like glass vials that people don't realize that we actually have um, a shortage, a global shortage of glass vials. And part of it, you want to talk about looking what we call upstream, uh, up the supply chain. Uh, when we say upstream, we look way back up to raw materials. Then you have stoppers that go into this. Then you go downstream. How are we actually going to distribute this? We have a transportation shortage in, in terms of actual vehicles that are refrigerated and keeping those in refrigerated units. How are they actually going to be delivered and stored? And it's staggering when we see we couldn't do this with PPE. Right, and PPE is just made of plastic, so you want to be able to... <laughs> yeah, it doesn't have an expiration date, right? I mean, you know, you could sit on a tarmac. But the other issue is when I mentioned the build of materials and all the pieces that go into, say, this injection kit, there's also what we call lead time. You know, different items take different lengths to produce. It might take, you know, a certain amount of time for glass vials to be made at certain amounts versus another amount of time for stoppers. So coordinating all this is just this massive feat. So this is absolutely monumental and critical. And, and I believe that this needs to be done right now. It needs to be done concurrently as we are developing these vaccine candidates to be looking at an end-to-end, -end, what we call an end-to-end -end supply chain. Assuming a vaccine can be successfully developed and distributed, both of which pose huge challenges, how is all this going to be paid for? Here's Seth Berkeley of Gavi again. If this needs to be a long-term vaccine, I think it can work through our existing systems where, you know, wealthy countries, you know, have this as part of one of the products that people take and, and then developing countries, uh, we can help subsidize the provision of those products um, produced in large volume at low cost, which is the model we tend to do. I think the bigger issue is going to be you know, what do we learn about this and how do we think about going forward? And what we really need is a mindset that says, and I think people now have seen it, these diseases can bring the world to their knees. It's costing right now $500 billion a month to the global GDP. You know, so this whole vaccine effort is basically a few days. If we could move the vaccines forward and, and reopen, it would pay for itself. So the challenge is how do we, in, in if I want to call it peacetime, continue to invest in the systems, making sure that we're ready to go, that we have the manufacturing facilities, that we've prepared and understand how these vaccines can be used so that when a new agent appears, and it's evolutionarily certain they will, that we can just pop that new agent into a platform technology that we know how to produce at scale, that we have the capacity to do, and therefore we can really shorten the time. Up until now, there haven't been the economics in place to do that, but my hope is the silver lining of this is that people will begin to perceive this differently. Natasha Loder says that when it comes to the economics of vaccines, there are many different approaches. The economics varies enormously. I mean, we know that Pfizer is going to charge for its vaccine and make money off its vaccine. Other companies have said they won't. You know, GSK, for example, is working with Sanofi on a vaccine. Um, Astra is saying that they won't make a profit as well. What these firms mean when they say they're not going to make a profit is that for the duration of a pandemic, they're not going to make money. It's as simple as that. Now, at some point, 
the pandemic will be announced to be over or perhaps these firms will decide that the pandemic's over and at that point they'll be able to make money from them. I think the biggest reason for hoping that vaccines will be set at a reasonable price is this COVAX initiative and that is where countries of the world have come together and they're going to make a sort of big commitment in terms of buying vaccines and that's when you get good prices. The COVAX initiative brings together rich and poor countries to ensure fair access to vaccines. Seth Berkeley of Gavi is one of the driving forces behind it. The idea is to try to go ahead and put together a consortium to buy vaccines. And we have gone ahead and asked countries if they wanted to join us. And and the good news is more than 180 countries have signed up to join the COVAX facility with more showing their intent of wanting to engage with this. So this is going to allow us to work with manufacturers to make sure there's large amounts of doses available, as well as begin to work on preparing countries for the distribution of vaccine. COVAX provides a mechanism for rich countries to subsidise access to vaccines for poor countries. That's not just to ensure wider and fairer access, it's also because it's the only way to defeat the virus. You are only safe when everybody is safe. If there are large reservoirs of virus that are circulating in other countries, even if you are vaccinated in your country, you never have 100% effective vaccine, you never have 100% of people vaccinated. So you would not be able to have your economy go back to normal with trade, tourism, commerce. Those would not be possible unless you dampen down the infection everywhere. And that's the way we have to think about this. It can't be, you know, only for my country or my town or my group, it really has to be how do we stop the global pandemic. If you look at the challenge with this particular disease, the big problem has been health systems being overwhelmed by quite ill people. I think the initial attempt is going to be to try to protect, say, the elderly, those with heart disease, those who have diabetes, obesity, because if you can protect them, you protect the health system, and that will mean that the effects of the uh, pandemic are really reduced. Obviously, our long-term goal is to stop the trans transmission of the virus. A focus on these groups, along with frontline health workers, makes sense. Even so, some rich countries are trying to ensure that their citizens get preferential access to vaccines. We're already seeing the politicisation of the vaccine. Ed Carr is deputy editor of The Economist. Yes, there are two deputy editors. We've seen both Russia and China make links with several countries in the Middle East and Latin America about providing early supplies and getting them to start to use the vaccine. So there's something of a sort of global race. And then domestically, you've seen the politicisation of the vaccine, particularly in the election campaign. I think that's been diffused uh, to some extent, uh, but it'll still be an issue about um, who gets the vaccine and when and under what what circumstances. And then sort of overlaid with this sense of vaccine diplomacy or vaccine nationalism about which countries come out on top. Now, we've seen that some members of COVAX are also trying to ensure that they get large quantities of vaccines for their own population. So Britain's government, for example, has ordered several hundred million doses of various vaccines that may or may not work. When they're talking to their populations, how are governments going to balance talking about what their own population needs versus what the world as a whole needs? It depends on what they want to achieve. I mean, there are very cogent, sensible reasons 
for thinking it's better for everybody if vaccines are distributed according to the population and need rather than according to who can grab them first. So there's a sort of enlightened political explanation people can say is that, you know, we need to deal with this disease as a whole and it's in everybody's interest to try and get the deaths down and this is just the sensible way of going about it and just as in our own countries we need to give it to health workers and vulnerable people first so we do globally the vaccine doesn't recognize borders and neither should we that's a message that's open to people but it's entirely possible as well for politicians and i'm, I'm sure there will be some and there'll be voters some voters who think like this say you know what i'm looking after you this is a scramble for vaccines and we're going to care for you and we're going to look after you and look how good I am at doing this. There will be politicians who do that and there'll be some voters who respond to it. And it'll be a, an interesting sort of acid test of the kind of politics and the kind of political philosophy people have as to which of those messages they emphasise more. It seems a safe bet that vaccines will arrive in 2021 then, but not in a quick fix form that will immediately return the world to its pre-pandemic state. So what will their impact be? And what do our guests think the world will look like a year from now? Nada Sanders first. I am hoping that we can get the supply chain in order quickly, simultaneous to vaccine development, because if we do that, we will be in a better position than we are today. Seth Berkeley next. My hope at the end of 2021 is that substantial amounts of vaccines have been shown to be safe and efficacious. They've begun to be rolled out and for the first time rolled out across all countries. And we could begin to see a dampening of uh, the pandemic to the degree that life can go somewhat back to normal. Natasha Loder. COVID-19 is still going to be around, it's still going to be circulating, we're not going to eradicate it in the next year. But I think we'll be going in with a much higher degree of confidence that we'll be able to continue to meet and socialise and we'll be feeling a lot more confident about that we can handle the virus. But we still will want to take precautions, I'm sure of that. And finally, Ed Carr. I think by the end of next year, it will be coming part of the routine, less frightening, less dangerous, less sort of encompassing, and there'll be little local outbreaks that are fairly quickly dealt with. And if you get it, treatments will be better. And so it'll be starting to fade into the background, but still with us. Thanks to Ed Carr, Natasha Loder, Seth Berkeley, and Nada Sanders. And thank you for listening to The World Ahead. For the latest on COVID-19, why not subscribe to The Economist? Visit economist.com slash podcast offer for the best introductory offer. And that link is in the show notes too. I'm Tom Standage. In London, this is The Economist. 